The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, space battles and grit from master of starfaring adventure and military science fiction and a new short story by this broken world author, Charles E. Gannon. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Associate Editor David Afsharirad, your new host here on the podcast. Today, we bring you our discussion with Dave Barra about his Bain Books debut novel, Trinity, the story of an intrepid starship captain who finds himself on the losing side of a civil war and with one last chance at redemption. But first, the news. For the month of October, we've got scary good deals on Bane Books Anthologies. It's the Anthology Galactica October ebook sale. Perhaps nothing highlights the ideas of science fiction and fantasy quite as well as the short story. Bane Books has long kept the short story alive and delivering the sense of awe and wonder SF and fantasy is known for. Throughout October, get these hot anthologies for a cool price. Get $2 off Weird World War III and Cosmic Corsairs and $1 off over two dozen more anthologies. Check out Bain.com for details. The sale ends October 31st and these discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. We're nearing the end of October and autumn is in full swing. Leaves are turning colors, there's a nip in the air, and the nights are getting longer. All that adds up to perfect weather for reading. Of course, it's our opinion that there really isn't any bad weather for reading. But if you're looking for some pros to help pass those longer evenings, head over to Bain.com and check out The Rot's Last Laugh, a new story set in the world of this broken world by Charles E. Gannon. Out from Under Young Druidin, along with several compatriots, both human and rot, finds himself in the under of Gur Grehar. Bad enough, but the method for getting out may prove even worse. Head over to Bane.com and read The Lot Rot's Last Laugh by Charles E. Gannon right now for free. And that's it for the news. Up next is our interview with Dave Barra about his Bane Books debut, Trinity. But first, let's meet the interviewer. If you listen to this podcast, you no doubt have heard his voice. And if you watch the podcast, you have seen his mustachioed mug. He is the author of the Witchy War series uh, with Aaron Michael Ritchie, the Cunning Man series, the standalone novel in the Palace of Shadow and Joy, among many other novels. Uh, he's got a new one out from Bane uh, next year called Abbott and Darkness. And no doubt we will interview him about that at that time, but today he will be the one asking the questions. Dave Butler, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour team. Thank you, David. Very happy to be uh, be on the team. Uh, so this is your first interview, at least for Bain, on the other side of the microphone. How did you like, uh, you know, getting to ask the questions? 
Well, it was a lot of fun. It was very exciting to read books that aren't out yet. Uh, you can get to know kind of secrets and then go talk to the author and say, uh, hey, tell me what you were thinking. Uh, you know, why, tell me why you don't have AIs and uh, why you chose to set your story right at the brink of faster than light travels discovery and and so on. So yeah, it was it was fun. It was fun from that point of view. I like I got along uh, with Dave like a house on fire. Uh, what a fun interview that was, and uh, look forward to sharing that with you here. I guess next it sounds like. Um, and That's of right. course, quite a big fan of Trinity. Very excited to see that come out. Yeah, uh, you talked to him about the novel. Uh, as I said, this is he's had some other books out, but this is his first one with us. So we're really excited to uh, bring him to the Bain family. Um, but was something just to kind of tease the interview that's coming right up in a couple of seconds. Uh, what was something in the book that hooked you or that was just a little point of interest uh, for you as a reader? Well, Dave does a great job of capturing that kind of space opera or military sci-fi that really strongly echoes Napoleonic naval fiction, right? Uh, and uh, and he's got a real strong captain. I mean, those things from Frederick Marriott to C.S. Forrester to Patrick O'Brien to David Weber, right? Like that, that those stories are really usually about a captain. Uh, and uh, Captain Jared Clement uh, is a real strong, interesting character. On the one hand, he's kind of part Mal from Firefly, where he is, uh, uh, he, he's, he's the loser in the Civil War. Uh, and, uh, and, and I always thought that, by the way, that Mal from Firefly was really kind of Jesse James. I thought, you know, people compared to Han Solo, I think he's Jesse James. So there's that kind of, that kind of Jesse James thing going on, but there's also quite a bit of James Tiberius Kirk, uh, in Jared Clement as well. Uh, in that he's this farm boy. He's got a little bit of a little bit of a old fashioned streak and him loves physical books like recall Kirk does. Um, and uh, he's pulled out of, it's not retirement, it's, uh, you know, inglorious, uh, making a living as a scrounger uh, because your uh, rebel army was defeated uh, and put into commission uh, really to sort of be a patsy. It's a bit of a spoiler, uh, but it's, just, I mean, you very early in the book realize he's being set up. And uh, it's a lot of fun to see him as a strong character interact with the forces that are betraying him. Uh, within this navy that in theory he has sworn oaths of loyalty to uh, and trying to win over the crew of that navy as he faces uh, alien life uh, forces, uh, alien life forms that really it's kind of first contact story, uh, as well as this kind of uh, military setup in which he's he's really destined to be the sacrificial lamb. Uh, so it's, you know, it's the it's the it's the, the strong rogue, not rogue, the strong captain with a bit of a rogue streak put in the impossible situation story. A lot of fun. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, I think that is a perfect segue into letting the other Dave, this is an all Dave show today, uh, letting the other Dave, Dave Barra, uh, speak about the book himself. So Dave Butler, I just want to welcome you again to the Bain Free Radio Hour team. And uh, let's take a look at the interview right now. Thanks very much, David. Hello, this is DJ Butler. Uh, I'm here with Dave Barra to talk about his new novel, Trinity, out now in uh, 
trade paperback and in all your favorite ebook formats drm free when you buy them at bain.com of course uh dave grew up as a fan of the gemini and apollo space programs and dreamed of being an astronaut himself one day uh <laughs> yes. to date though he has restricted his journeys into space to the written word he lives in the pacific northwest uh hi dave uh hey. welcome to the bain free radio hour thank you david it's a pleasure to be here as always and uh yeah i'm looking forward to it you know it, it's really funny before you jump into the questions, um, my bio is really accurate in that, I mean, my oldest memories are of the Gemini space program launches. I remember a little bit about, I think the night, I think when Kennedy was killed, I was three years old and I remember very somber music. But other than that, I am, I have a twin brother. We both, uh, our earliest memories are of the space program. So it's like, no. Oh. We were kind of, he writes nonfiction stuff, um, but it's all kind of space oriented type stuff. And I'm, I mean, it feels like we were always kind of destined to just be in this writing about science fiction or writing about science or writing about space. It's kind of an interesting, interesting thing. But yeah, that's, I always dreamed of being an astronaut and then some other kid in the neighborhood had got an astronaut uh, Halloween costume and Man, I was heartbroken. I was stuck being Batman or something. <laughs> so, so maybe we'll get a Batman novel out of you one day. Is what you're? Yeah, saying. that would be cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Batman in space. You Batman mean. in space would be good. The, I don't think anyone's done the bat, the bat spaceship yet, the bat yeah. space spider or anything. So it, yeah. that feels like the kind of thing that if we looked far enough, we'd find some Japanese uh, movie from the seventies with yeah. Batman. That's probably true. You know, the interesting thing, too, about DC Comics is I always liked DC because I thought they were more science fiction oriented than Marvel, which I thought was a little bit more fantastical and not quite as, yeah. as sci-fi oriented. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, speaking of sci-fi oriented, so I read and quite enjoyed Trinity. I will confess it's my first Dave Barra novel. Okay. Okay. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it. You know, your, your sure. protagonist, uh, Jared Clement. Now he's a, he was, he was, well, I guess I should say he is as yeah. the story opens in chapter one, he is the, uh, captain in a rebel, in a rebel Navy, the rim confederation, mm -hmm. uh, right. basically the opening sequence is the losing battle, right? Yeah. Uh, which sets him up as being this character who is, at least in some respects, a little bit like Captain Mal in Serenity, where he's, yes, uh, he's uh, uh, and 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 I always thought that Mal was based um, that fundamentally when we watched Serenity or Firefly the first time, and uh, I think my wife said, "Oh, he's like Han Solo." I said, "No, no, it's Jesse James. He was on the losing side <laughs> of the Civil yeah. War, and he's going to keep going right. as kind of an outlaw, right?" Um, tell me, tell, tell me more about Jared Clement. What other comparisons would you make or what's interesting about him? Well, I think what's interesting about him is uh, although he is a rebel in his heart, he was loyal to, to his cause. He was loyal to the, the, they call it the five sons Alliance. He was loyal to those, the people in the Navy he belonged to much like many of the people in the South during the civil war, they were loyal Americans, but they were also loyal to Virginia or loyal to, you know, the Carolinas, wherever their states were. And although they were Americans, they were of their states first. And he's a man very much like that. He was 
Um, uh, part of the Five Sons Navy, he was fairly decorated, not, not a super high ranking uh, uh, officer, but uh, he was on his, happened to be on his home world when things started to collapse and he had a choice to make. And the choice was difficult, but he chose to defend his, his family and his home because essentially the way I set it up, basically the rim worlds are very poor compared to the other uh, planets in the five suns. And um, I think he was very driven by the desire to make sure his people didn't starve and that his family was taken care of. And those are things I think that motivated a lot of people um, during the Civil War. It wasn't so much battles over slavery or, or things of a higher nature. It was more of a just, how are we going to survive if this continues? So that's the choice I think he had to make. Um, it wore on him. I think that split in loyalty war on him. I don't think he, when he uh, had to surrender, I don't, I don't think he was, I think he was relieved in many ways. He didn't have to keep fighting uh, a losing battle, one that he knew was probably gonna be not a good, good, um, a good outcome from the start. But uh, talking about Firefly, um, I was looking one day at a poster I have of the, of the, of the verse, yeah. and I thought, well, you know, I mean, that's kind of an interesting, idea without getting into specifics but you know maybe that's all there is is there's this colony of the five sons are, are, are um, five stars that are very close together I, I did do, do a map Tony Daniel didn't we didn't get it into the book but I did do a map of these five suns there's two centrally located stars that sort of rotate around each other where the the core worlds are and as you go further out there are red dwarfs um, around it and those planets around those they get progressively um, less prosperous as you get out. And by the time you get out to the rim where, uh, where Jared Clement is from, you're into some very poor worlds that are struggling to survive uh, day to day. But there are always going to be people, um, I mean, you know, the old west, who settled the old west? You know, a lot of tough people, a lot of people that had no other options, probably people that were running from the law or whatever. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, they weren't hospitable places to go to. I mean, the Arizona desert's not a great place to go hang out. No, it's um, true of the East too, right? This who settled yeah. the American East when it was settled. Yes, exactly. American East. There's, uh, there's a, a whole Russell song called The Outcast about yeah. this. I would like to read that. I, I uh, One of my favorite periods in history is the period of time between the uh, end of the Revolutionary War and the Trail of Tears. And that time in between, there were so many um, Native Americans who were serving in Congress and they were integrating their lives in with the white settlers. And that didn't matter. The white I mean, some there's a book there somewhere, whether it's a historical book or, or something. But there's, there's stories to be told there that I don't think we tell very much in, in American history. Um, but anyway, as it relates to Clement, he's, he's a guy who, um, is driven to succeed, but once the war is over, he just wants to kind of go under, under the undercover, not necessarily undercover, but he wants to go under the radar and live his life out. He's lost his 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 career. He's lost his uh, woman, the woman that he loves. He's lost his friends. Um, he's gone through. Um, he's gone through Navy, sort of 
hazing and he's you know given up information and things he didn't want to didn't necessarily want to give up um and now he's kind of wants to live a quiet life out of the way um but still in space and then suddenly this opportunity comes up for him actually on um on bain.com there's a story called shattered trust that is the it's the it's the sequel to the prologue of the book but it's the prequel to the actual rest of the novel a missing so chapter two it's a missing chapter two it's basically him what happens to him in the year and year and a half two years after um he gets picked up um after he gets defeated in the uh in the battle in the opening prologue Very good. so now, that's that's see. available for free for I free you can find that shattered trust dave trust yeah on Bain's website yeah. yeah and that gives you a little bit more background into into what he was going through and what he was thinking at that time um but over time of course he kind of um got stuck inside the bottle a little bit he had a lot of pain he was dealing with he he lost the, the love of his life but he doesn't really know why and um he finds out later why but it's not a good revelation yeah so yeah. Well, I like that. So he's so he's not ideological. He's not a, he's not a rebel for the sake of no. rebellion or because he disagrees with the constitution of the five sons. Right. Uh, or whatever. He's he's a people person. He's loyal to his people. Yes. Um, I think that matters a lot for decisions he makes during uh, the course of Trinity. Right. Um, I think it's also interesting. Um, maybe maybe you tell me maybe there's a bit of a connection with his name there right clement is merciful uh and uh you know J jared is is uh, he clement is latin jared is hebrew it's the one who descends or comes down wow so is, i don't know if those were deliberate kinds of echoes you were building into his name i you know what i in honest and all all honesty um names like that come to me from the ether whatever and that was just the name that I, when i sat down to write his name that was the name that came out that's yeah. fascinating to hear what you say yeah. what you say about that because i i mean in my first uh trilogy mm -hmm. uh we had, I had a char character named peter cochran and he was a long there's a lot of weird connections between well, that a very and, famous uh, uh, naval captain from the British Navy, the Napoleonic, yeah. Napoleonic named Thomas Cochran, right? And Thomas Cochran may be the model in part for Patrick O'Brien's uh, Jack Aubrey, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very interesting. The, the, the thing that's interesting about that, though, is when I wrote the, the Cochran character, I didn't know about Thomas Cochran, or yeah. unless I, if I did, it was something I'd learned back in high school or college, and I'd started away in my. Right subconscious and it just came out yeah. at that point but yeah um it is interesting how that happens yeah and the way that you uh yeah those meanings mean something i think that clement in many ways has kind of come down in his life to a lower level he's trying to kind of skate through no but circumstances as they often do uh, require him to once again step up yeah life yeah, yeah, very interesting. So, um, do you think? So, I'd like to know what makes Jared Clement successful, and and do you think that one of the things that makes him successful, or what are his advantages? I mean, is that loyalty to people, that connection to people, is that one of his advantages, or is that a weakness for him, or both? And what else makes him succeed? 
I think I think it's a huge advantage for him. I think I think people are loyal to him because he is loyal to them. And I, you know, obviously I can't, I haven't had a chance in this book to show all the different reasons why he has that loyalty, but a lot of it, of course, occurred during the war. That's where he built most of the relationships of the crew and the people around him. Um, I think that he um, really, his, his background is such that he doesn't want to be a hero, but he's, he's really a, a brilliant and innovative military tactician. Um, I'm not a great military tactician, but I do have a lot of, I do experience a lot of intuition and intuitive moments in my life. And I think one of the things I always infuse in my characters, and I got this from reading um, many years ago from reading Gordon Dixon's book, Dorsi. I don't know if you've ever read that. It's an old military sci-fi book, but he talks about intuition in there quite a bit. And I think that, that and you know, Captain Kirk, of course, on Star Trek always relied on his intuition, his, his hunch or his gut. Um, but Clement has this intuition. And I think that, that he uses that in military situations to, um, to create the unexpected moment. And when that happens, he has an advantage. It may not be a killing advantage. It may not be the advantage that's gonna win him the entire war, but it may get him out of that battle. It may save his crew. And I think that they've learned to trust him, that his intuition, his hunches, his, um, combined with his experience is something that they can rely on so that's how i see that relation those relationships yeah interesting so uh, we do see uh, in the book several uh several of his key crew members some of his key officers and engineers right people who fought with him uh at the in chapter one at the end right. of the rebellion um right. Tell, tell us about, and well, and we also see uh, Ilana DeVore, who is right. not on his crew in this book, but was part of his crew in the, in the rebellion. Tell us about who are some of the main characters here aboard, uh, aboard his ship on these two journeys. I think we'll get to Ilana DeVore last. Um, Mika Ori is a, um, a pilot. She's a helmsman, if you will. She's a pilot. She's exceptionally good at what she does. Um, and she's married, she has a husband who also serves on the ship, and his name is Ivan Massif, he's Russian, but he's a, an excellent navigator. Between them, the two of them make a really outstanding team. He can pick a point and she can get them there. And those are key people you've gotta have. You've always gotta have some sort of engineer, especially when I'm, you're trying to introduce some unique technology. My technology is, this, is the LEAP drive, which I believe stands for liquid, energy absorption, absorption propulsion. <laughs> I, I got that, I, well, it's a long story how I got that, but um, the leap drive is the first faster than light drive. And so Nobly is a guy who's worked on this program has, while well, Clement's been off drinking and flying freighter missions, these guys have all been working and they've been working for the five sons. He's a, he's a talented engineer, but this was sort of a crew that he he kind of lucked onto, got together with him during the Rim War, the Rim Rebellion, if you want to call it that, or the War of the Five Sons, as I refer to it a lot in the book. And those are the three main ones. And then I wanted to bring in some young characters. So I brought in four uh, midshipmen, four midshipmen um, 
Kayla Adebayor, I wanted an African woman. I'm currently dating an African woman. So that turned out pretty interesting. But um, she, she wasn't actually the inspiration, but I wanted someone, obviously, and I wanted, um, you know, a, a broad group of people. And the four middies kind of give you the reflection of what do the young people think of him? And they think of him as sort of this legend, but they're not sure. It's been enough time since the war's ended. They're not sure if they're supposed to admire the guy or hate him. And uh, so they kind of get involved and they play pretty key roles as well in the development of the, of the story as it go along. And then of course we have uh, uh, Captain uh, Donington who actually, is it Donington? I can't remember what name, I changed the name I think. Uh, Cause Tony was originally, he was Captain Daniel and he was going to be a traitor. And he's Captain Daniel because Tony Daniel is constantly killing me in his novels and so I've been trying to, to make him a villain and kill him and mine. Um, but he didn't, he didn't like that. He thought we should change the name. So at the last minute we did do a name change. Um, so Daniel becomes kind of the good midshipman who gets killed, but um, the other character ends up being the traitor. Yeah. Uh, interesting. You know, it's one of the, um, as you talk, there are so many kind of connecting lines to maybe take care of the conversation forward along. Yeah. I, um, the relationship with the midshipman is interesting. That's kind of a classic, again, Napoleonic trope, right? Where right. the captain has right. a distinctive connection. He's responsible for the education of the midshipman. Right. Know, uh, um, and, and so you, you see that a lot in, in, in the fiction. Um, right. How does the relationship, how does uh, Jared Clement come by these midshipmen and, and where does their relationship go? I mean, I don't want to get into spoilers too much, but you know. Right. Well, you know, he's, he's, he's honest. He's on the station. He's been, he's been summoned basically to a nearby station, not nearby, but the closest station where the Five Sons has a major force. And um, he doesn't know why he's going there, but he, he ends up going out. He wants to enjoy the station has some amenities. He goes out to a bar, it's a Navy bar, and he's out there and he's in sort of his old rim Confederation Navy uniform, but without any rank. So he's kind of making himself stand out. He is drawing attention to himself, um, but not really trying to make too much trouble. And these four middies are over there and obviously they've had history classes they know he was the best commander that the Rim Confederation had during the war. Uh, and they kind of recognize him. Obviously it's 15 years on, he's a little more gray, a little more grizzled, but they, they recognize him and they come over and they want to find out. They want him to tell them stories about the war because they now live in an environment that uh, 15 years on, you know, they're not fighting anymore. So there are no enemies, uh, natural enemies for the five sons. Uh, to fight. And I, I kind of relate that a little bit to um, the post 9-11 world. Mm. Um, you know, for a few years there, man, everybody was focused on the military and the wars that were taking place in the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan. But then within a decade or so, you know, it, a new generation comes up and it kind of becomes something that they study as history, not something that they experience. So you have these young young middies who um, are, have been through that. They have not experienced the things that this man Clement has gone through. So they're curious and they get brave and they come over and they start asking him about war stories. And he starts at that point, even starts schooling them 
even before they're under his command. Yeah. So, but that's one of the things. Yeah, it's one of the things he ends up asking for is he, they were brave enough to come over and sort of challenge him. And so he's intrigued by that and he wants to see what he can get out of them. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and then recruits them onto his ship. He's given, he's given a command back with the Five Sons Navy. Right. Maybe this is an example of Jared Clement's intuition where yeah. there's, a, there's this sort of eh, strange offer and uh he's not entirely sure where it's going but maybe he has some suspicions and so he yes to build a core that's loyal to him exactly um that's interesting another piece of his intuition we talked about nobly who's the engineer he's he's been yes. developing the drive mm -hmm. um and uh and uh and so as soon as as uh, captain clement gets this command uh he immediately consults with nobly about uh other possible projects other possible uh, uses of the technology yeah so yes. how does that go where, where does that maybe again another example of his intuition right being able well, to see around the corner i think you know here's the thing we we left out the alara devore character a little bit yes. they had been lovers then he became her commander. captain clement right captain clement they've been lovers he became her commander they had to stop that relationship um, not because he wanted to or because she wanted to, but because it had, for military protocol reasons, it had stopped. So um, Alara is the one that sort of gives him this opportunity. And it turns out it's actually even his own, his old ship that's been re repurposed to be the first fast of the light ship to travel from star to star. And they're going to the Trinity system. So, um, what kind of happens there is they, um, he doesn't entirely trust her. So he thinks that this mission is gonna be more than just the sort of cruise out there, check out these three planets, come back and tell us what you found. He, he's suspicious because she is now in a you know, pretty high ranking Five Sons Navy officer. And in the back of his mind, he's gotta be wondering, wow, how did she get that high from being a prisoner just like me 15 years ago so you know he's got some thoughts in the back of his head i think that he knows somebody betrayed him he's not really sure who uh he might have an inkling but um you know i think he's always looking for an angle he says i may need something if i don't want to i don't want to fight a battle but he has and he has to fight her to even get armaments on the ship so uh he gets some missiles and he's supposed to have nukes uh, we won't tell you that story, but he's supposed to have nuclear weapons. Um, but he's always looking for another angle. And he knows Nobly is pretty much a genius. He's been on the development program for this, this technology, this reactor technology. And, um, you know, he says, well, hey, could there be any other application for this technology? Could we use it in some way to defend the ship? And Nobly says, well, you know, here, I've got this party prototype that. And he goes, Nobly's the kind of guy who he just his engineering is his life, right? So if he sees a concept that intrigues him, he's going to take it, take it to the next step, the next step, the next step, the next step. So um, they do have this option, and they go ahead and um, Clement has him develop it, and so they have something that nobody expects them to have, oh. which gives them, you know, later on a bit of an advantage. Bit of an edge, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so this is interesting. So let's, 
let's um again i think you've really touched on this but let's kind of spell some of it out explicitly so sure so the story is um well in chapter one uh pre pre-fto no fast yes. might travel right um we're in a the five sons refers to a single system um, right it's sometime is it uh like ad 2500 is that right something uh, it's around 2500 yeah 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 um and and there's you know we 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 hear about some history in the in the the intervening 500 years a bit um, right but uh, uh so it's so it's pre-ftl um and then this trinity system is several light years away uh, right uh, and so the you know hiring captain clement or or, or hiring is the wrong word but restoring him giving him a command right uh is uh is, is to, to leave the system really for the first time in at least, you know, decades or maybe hundreds of years, right? They've yeah, yeah. because the, the five suns were founded from Earth by uh, generation ships. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that's the concept anyway. So, um, okay, so pre-FTL. Now, they're, um, uh, correct me if I missed it, but I don't see any AIs, right? I don't see any. There's... No. No, no, AI, no, no real AIs. There's, you know, there's computing systems, but they're basically slaves to the the people, if yeah. you will, at this at this point. And uh, and then we end, um, and also uh, pre first contact, right? During right. The, the war happens, right. uh, it's all humans. Um, it is. So uh, so this is interesting. All right, T- tell me about this. Uh, you know, so many. Um, so many science, so several kind of staples of science fiction literature and maybe especially film, like you just yeah. set aside, right? Um, uh, no, no faster than light travel, uh, no aliens, no AIs. Um, t- tell me about the aesthetic decisions you're making here. Or why did you want to write a story in this particular kind of universe? I remember, actually, my first trilogy also has no no aliens in it. And I remember someone, I can't remember quite who quoted it, but he said, you know, most alien characters are just humans that we attribute different physical characteristics to. They still have the same motivations or they kind of have to because we can only, human minds can only conceive of what an alien mind might be and might might think like. I didn't feel like it was necessary to have uh, an alien contact in, at this point. Um, in the story, I felt like um, what was going on with the human characters was probably enough mm-hmm. uh, for the for the story. And I mean, I, honestly, look, we're in the third decade of the twenty first century, and you know, we should have had contact with somebody by now. Maybe it's the rare the rare Earth uh, theory. Maybe it's the idea that there's. I think someone said there might only be thirty six uh intelligent species in this entire galaxy i can't remember what that theory was called but i kind of went down that road and said okay i want to i want to isolate um this to the story about the people i think that's a good enough to do the story of the whole story um we do however encounter some extraterrestrials but later on we kind of find out that they're pretty much just like us so Mostly, mostly like us. So, um, so that means your novel is like right on the cusp, actually, right? Because yeah, because right. Leap Drive is the this is the first faster than light ship, and we right. have literally, at least we think initially, 
the first contact and, and uh, it, but there's interesting kind of possibilities that there will in fact be then maybe a real first contact story behind that one right right um we Absolutely. sort of see, see humans with a mysterious backstory and we're not sure why they're here and right yeah um, and we're also we're not sure who put them there we're not so. sure who put them there yeah uh yeah fantastic um so uh all right sort of a here's a here's a this is kind of a trivial question. So if you were okay. if you were casting, if you were casting, this is this is a this is um we should say this. This is this is an adventure story. This is a space right. shoot each right. other, they go to places where you know uh unexplored territory, we've got political intrigue and betrayal and mutiny, right? Um right. if you were to cast Jack Clement, right, you were to pick a contemporary actor, um and or maybe other key key characters too, but especially yeah. Clement. Who would you cast? Right. Um, I think it would be between about a ten years younger George Clooney <laughs> and maybe a ten years younger Brad Pitt. Um, but you kind of want that grizzled look, and I'm not really sure who um, beyond those guys would sort of fit. But uh, somebody who can show some of the wear and tear that they've gone through in their lives. And um, I think those two guys are, are kind of people I think of right off the top of my head. There were other characters that I definitely had ideas for based on yeah. actors. Uh, Alara DeVore was basically, when, I'm, when I was writing her, I was thinking about Morena Baccarin, who was obviously was in Firefly, but obviously in a very different role, obviously, than what I've got her in. Um, the other characters, not so much anybody in particular, um, the helmsman, Mika, Ori. Um, I have a friend who has a very similar name to that. And she served uh, in the Israeli Defense Forces. And she posted some pictures of her when she was in the IDF one day on Facebook. And I asked her, hey, can I kind of use this idea? And so she kind of became the model for the navigator. So yeah. And the other ones, a lot of some of the other characters, the, the nav, uh, or sorry, not the navigator, she's the pilot, but the navigator, um, his name is Yvonne Massif. I had him in a short story uh, that I think was in the Star Destroyers anthology. And I thought I'm just going to reuse this character because he didn't get enough play in the short story. So, you know, a lot of a lot of things of that nature. Nobly is a character that I kind of came up with. Um, for an earlier novel I did called Speedwing, which was supposed to be a young adult uh, book, but it had some adult content in it and whoever the, the publisher or small publisher, they, uh, they uh, didn't edit things very well. But anyway, he's sort of a, a jack of all trades kind of character. You kind of need one of those, those guys in your books. Uh, and I just, he just kind of came out of the, the ether for me to use that. And then the young ensigns are, all based just on, you know, sort of ideas of who, what kind of crew would the five sons um, be putting out there? And, you know, there are all different kinds of immigrants that have come from Earth to, um, to the five sons. The other, the other thing I like to talk about, and I think people should think about is, you know, show me today a Roman. Show me someone who is ethnically a Roman from the Roman Empire. And you can't really tell me who they are or what they look like because 
Rome was invaded and sacked so many times and the population's all mixed. I mean, there aren't any Saxons anymore to speak of. There aren't any Celts anymore to speak of. I mean, there are people that are descended. And I've got this concept that as we move out into space, um, I think the ethnic lines and the racial lines are gonna blur quite a bit. So you may have a character that, okay, seems like it's a white guy or he seems like it's an African, but it may be someone who, when we would look at them today, they would be very different in terms of how they looked, their, their ethnic makeup, their characteristics. So that's something I think that we don't think about enough in science fiction. We get, we get hooked on, and you see this on a lot of television programs, you see this on the Star, recent Star Trek Discovery and some stuff like that, you know, where everybody's got to have this specific ethnicity. We have to have a black captain and a female this and a, you know, and it's like, uh, we don't know. We don't know what 500 years or 300 years it's going to be like. We don't know what humanity is going to look like as a, in general, as a whole, three to 500 years from now, because we're just now starting to develop the technology, aircraft, all these things where we kind of mix together. And so, in, you know, I, I have an African girlfriend and she was born and raised in Kenya. And uh, I never expected that, but that's, that's what I have. And, um, so I think those things are going to change as time goes on. That's just my opinion. Yeah. So I don't like to get hung up too much on characteristics um, of individual characters. I mean, I want to give you a general description. He's six foot one, he's got dark hair, you know, et cetera. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting that although you can't find an ancient Roman or an ancient Macedonian, there are there are cultures today, right? We haven't like blended right. into a into a homo homogeneous mass. No, so it's interesting to think how think how cultures will uh, not disappear but resort themselves, right? And so yeah. you talked about hey, you know, uh, what kinds of differences can we expect between those who have settled the inner worlds of this system, whereas those who are versus those who are willing to go live out, yeah. And the Kuiper Belt or whatever, or the outer, uh, the outer rim, right, is maybe an example of imagining how uh, culture might get re, you know, blended, but then also resorted as its right. physical circumstances change. And I think I do mention in the book, like there's one, there's one world where um, uh, Yan, Captain Yan, or Commander Yan, is from, from, and she's she's of Chinese descent. That's you know, that's simple enough, but. Um, yeah. They also, that planet was settled by both the Chinese and, and the French. And so, you know, there's mixes of everything in there. And I think you see this in Indochina. You see this a lot in what they used to call Indochina. Uh, Vietnam still has a lot of French culture and, and food. And there are mixed race people in, in those countries. So I just think that as we go out into space, I, I think you're going to see as we go on into space in the next hundred years, I think we're going to see um, people that are, that are groups that have the same sort of ideas, the same sort of cultural um, concepts, cultural ideas, things that they want to express on their own and they wanna go, if we ever develop interstellar colonization, I think groups of people that share sort of a homogenous culture will want to go and establish their own colonies. That's 
just my take on it. I, I've always fascinated by when I go up to Canada, which is very, I live in Seattle. So I go to, well, when you can get into Canada, when COVID's not happening, you can, you can go up there. And I, I'm always surprised by how homogenous the Canadian culture is. Now, granted, there's, there's the French and they speak French, but a lot of English Canadians speak French as well. So there's that, but but really, when you watch their television and you watch their news and you watch their their television programming and their entertainment, it is uh, comparatively to the United States far more homogenous than our culture here. Interesting. So it's it's I think I think those groups of people are kind of going to want to stick together as they go out into space. That's just my thought. So. Yeah. Well, interesting. Um, hey, you mentioned the leap drive earlier. This yeah, is on a uh, real-world hypothetical idea, at least, right? right. Called Alcubierre yep. uh, drive. Uh, tell tell us about that drive and kind of the basic idea there. And and I mean, if there's anything you want to say about kind of the research and the thinking, I'd love to hear it. Well, I, I think the Alcubierre drive obviously is the model that I used, and essentially your ship doesn't really move it ends up on a you create enough power to create a, a warp essentially in space where you're kind of i guess you're tipping the ship a little bit and you're sort of surfing on a wave of warped normal space in my concept i created a bubble um around the ship i'm not sure if that's part and parcel of the alcubierre drive but um it does you know create a bubble where it's the bubble that's moving faster than light, not the ship. The ship is simply in standard space within a bubble of warped space, if you will. So um, I actually do believe, uh, and who knows, we may have this technology already. I do believe that we're going to um, develop technologies that uh, we can go quote unquote, faster than light. I, I don't think we'll ever actually travel faster than light. We'll call it faster than light technology. What we'll, it'll really be will be our ability to, to change or warp space or change space time so that we can um, get from one place to the other a lot more quickly than we could with conventional means. And um, I, I think we're on the cusp of that. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 50 years, we have that kind of technology. Um, probably not manned technology, but probably unmanned probes could be sent out using that type of technology. Interesting. I was, uh, as of this recording, two weeks ago, I was uh, with a group called the Interstellar Research Group at their symposium down in Tucson. Right. Hearing a lot of papers about different proposals for how to, uh, how to do that or how to get closer to it. So maybe I'll see you with their spring 2022 uh, yeah uh, or i think it's maybe yeah. spring 2023 montreal uh canadian culture up there together speaking uh, french speaking of french that's the city i really want to visit is montreal the, i know that the um is it world fantasy world fantasy convention is up there this year that's uh that's uh is yeah. world fantasy i think it is that's right sorry i missed out on that one but um yeah, I just think that that we are on the verge of a lot of breakthroughs. Uh, we talk about Star Trek technology, you know, the flip phone, the cell phone. 
Um, in many ways, I think we're beyond a lot of the stuff that they have. I mean, you go back and watch even Star Trek, the next generation stuff from the 90s, and the technology is so clunky compared to what we have 20 years later, 30 years later. It's, yeah. it's almost amusing in a lot of ways. And yeah. um, so I, I think we're really on, on the verge of breaking out. And I think, you know, whether it would be something like the Leap Drive, the LQBR Drive, I think the EM Drive has a lot of possibilities, especially if you believe in hyper dimensions. If you believe in higher dimensions than what we have, then, because the, the problem is always power. Do we have enough, how do we get enough power to go at this fast sort of warp space time or something of that nature? And um, if you're able to pull energy from another higher dimension, maybe power isn't such an issue. Right. And a lot of that, you know, the, the M drive could actually be something where they're, they're generating the power and the thrust from particles that are from a higher dimension. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? You know, I heard that refrain many times from physicists in Tucson two weeks ago. The problem, yeah. the limiting factor yeah. is always power. That's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so all right. So you're, so you think FTL soon-ish, but you're skeptical about alien life. So we'll, we'll, uh, if, if you're right about the former, then maybe we'll, we'll get an answer on the latter uh, soon. You know, we'll see. Here's the thing. What if we found out yeah. that um, aliens did not really in, involve travel here through space? What if it wasn't space travel that brought them here? What if it's like interdimensional travel, that they're able to travel through dimensions? Um, or multiverses or whatever you want to say. If that if that's the case, then there could there obviously could be billions and trillions of of alien cultures out there. But maybe not necessarily in this galaxy. Maybe they're all over the universe. If there's no boundary to distance to time and distance, they're able to have some technology that allows them to move interdimensionally. Then at that point, you know, the number of races is infinite as big as the universe is, uh, maybe even bigger, maybe there's a, maybe as big as a multiverse. I think there's a lot of multiverse theory that's um, pretty, pretty compelling in a lot of ways. So, I mean, I, 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 it's not that I don't believe in aliens. Mm. It's just for the purposes of this story, this story yeah. it was easier for me. It's a little bit easier to tell it yeah. without, without that, at least at the beginning. Now, there is a follow-up book. I get more into who these natives are, you know, and what technology might be behind that, and then yeah, who yes. built that. So, yeah. of course, yeah. of course, if we do have, you know, I mean, those alternate models where you've got other infinite potentially life forms, we run up against your first uh, doubt, which is, well, why haven't we heard from them yet? So it's right, right. But but you gave me a good segue to really my last question, which is there is a uh, there is a uh, sequel coming, right? Yes, there is. So what what should we uh, tell us about the sequel? What's got you excited about book two here? Well, book two is called Trinity's Children, and um, in many ways, first of all, you know I haven't really explained Trinity. I based the Trinity system off of the in initial thoughts about the Trappist. Uh, one is Trappist one star system where they thought they had three habitable planets. And that's kind of what we have here. But um, in the sequel, we're going to get into more into who are the natives, who brought them there, but it's still going to be the same uh, type of story where 
there's going to be a conflict between two opposing powers. Mm -hmm. And Clement now is on the side, instead of being formerly part of the rim, he's now on the side, the side of the five sons. But there's yet another, the Earth people sent a ship. They sent a generation ship in the first book. Mm -hmm. There's another one, but because of time, because of the time it takes to travel in a generation ship, you know, it's a different kind of uh, potential oh, yeah. enemy that they face. Yeah. So um, in many ways, they think Clement, he thinks he's going there to um, lead a colonization, a settlement on these worlds, trying to leave the natives uh, at peace to develop on their own as much as possible. But still, there's this crisis that they're trying to avoid. Uh, sort of a societal collapse because of, of resources, lack of resources. And Trinity worlds have all kinds of resources. So it's going to be about a battle over these, these resources. And, you know, look, let's be honest, the villain, he, he, he leaves her alive at the end of the book. And it's always a bad idea <laughs> because they almost always have something else up their sleeve. So that's uh, okay. Fantastic. And will that be, yeah. um, I guess, two questions. One, is it now book one was very much in sort of the a descendant of Napoleonic naval fiction. Right. Book two kind of same genre in that sense. In that sense, yes, very much so. And, you know, yeah. that's another thing. I don't know why I'm so fascinated with Napoleonic era society, culture, naval, military culture, whatever. All my favorite movies are movies of that era, like Barry Lyndon and and Waterloo, which is one of my favorite favorite movies ever. But um, yeah, it very much continues in that in that vein. Um, but the other thing is, is Clement's now been put in charge of a lot of things, mm. and I'll be honest with you, he hates that. Yeah, he he to him, he's always his best use is as a ship captain, yeah. and when you put him in a bigger environment where he has to make bigger decisions well he'll make them but he's not very happy about having to do it it's not it's not the thing he wants to do so he has to rely on other people to help him make proper decisions so fantastic and how what stage are you at any sense of kind of how close you are getting that done or do you know what's I'm, coming out already no i don't know when it's coming out yet i'm i'm almost done i'm at about eighty thousand words and um uh, Tony Weisskopf wants it by Christmas, so she'll get it by Christmas. I mean, I'm going to get it done, but it's like I, I, I am usually don't do a lot of rewriting, so I'm going to go back through this book, and there's some pieces. What was different with this new book, The Trinity's Children, it's called, um, is that I had all these events that were going to occur, but they, as I wrote the book, they started occurring in order, a different order than I had thought they were going to happen when I kind of laid out the story. So I've kind of had to go back and a lot of that interconnective tissue that you have to put in uh, between, you know, different parts of the book and, okay, what, if they did this here, what's their motivation for doing this, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of that stuff too, but I'm, I'm planning on having it to her on time and she's talking i think about a fairly early she wants to get a cover done so i think they're talking about getting it out sometime in in 2022 yeah. yeah yeah pretty close Fantastic. well congratulations yeah. hey once again uh the the book is trinity uh out now in trade paperback and uh and, uh, and ebook there it is
Look at that <laughs> lovely, fantastic cover. I, it's a, uh, that's a great cover. I, I got it. I, I think it's, uh, I want to say, Kent, Kurt Burns did the cover art. I think he did a great job. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, I think it looks terrific. I'm looking for, yeah, it is, it is Kurt, I'm pretty sure. Kurt Miller, sorry. Kurt Miller. Oh, there we go. There we go. Yeah, you did a great job. Yeah, I did great. So, uh, well, maybe you'll get a second Kurt Miller cover for uh, for the sequel. That'd be awesome. We'll see. Fantastic. Dave Barahay, right. uh, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the show. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. David, we'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks, Dave and Dave. Now we bring you the next installment of our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. One. Tyler dropped his chainsaw and pulled out his cell phone. He'd barely felt the vibration and it was impossible to hear over the saw. He looked at the caller ID and tried not to curse. Three missed calls from the same... <sighs> Tyler Vernon. Tyler, it's Mrs. Cranshaw. How are you today? Just fine, ma'am, Tyler said, squeezing his eyes shut and waiting for it. She always started nice. And you? Fine, just fine, Mrs. Cranshaw said. Fine weather we're having getting cold. The frost should bring out the leaves a treat. Yes, ma'am, Tyler replied. Here it comes. Speaking of it getting cold, I think I asked you to bring by some firewood. Yes, ma'am, and I said I'd get it over there on Friday. Well, it's gone Wednesday. Are you going to be here on Friday? When I say I'm going to be there, I'll be there, ma'am. Well, I asked for it last week. Seems you could have got it here before Friday. You're not doing much else. Just working at the market part-time, working in the bookstore part-time, working at the mill part-time, cutting wood, splitting wood by hand, and answering your damned phone calls every damn day. Oh, and the rare consulting gig. But other than that, I've got all the time in the world. I suppose I could point out that I could have delivered it Sunday night at 10 p.m., but she'd go and tell all her friends I'd been snippy with her and half my clientele would dry up rather than go up against her vicious tongue. Gotta work at the market this evening, ma'am, Tyler said politely. Couldn't get it by until late. Tomorrow, I'm going to be working at the bookstore all day and then in the market that evening. I'll be there at one Friday if the job I've got to do at the mill don't take too long, no later than four. You'd better be here by one, Mrs. Cranshaw said. I don't want to be without wood this weekend. Yes, ma'am, Tyler said. You'll be with the Lord, Tyler Vernon, Mrs. Cranshaw said and hung up. Tyler closed the phone and swung it back and forth in his fist, wanting to crush it and the whole damned world that seemed to be determined to do nothing but ruin the life of one Tyler Vernon.
Tyler Alexander Vernon was five foot two, one hundred and thirty-five pounds, and long over the problem of having three first names. He'd been born and raised in Mississippi, graduated from LSU with a master's in computer science, and after applying five times at NASA, ended up working for an internet backbone center in Atlanta. That had led to various positions in the IT field and a pretty steady corporate advance culminating in a senior manager position at AT&T in Boston. Then came the real breakout. Trade hard. He'd had it made in the shade. He and his wife, okay, had some issues. But even if money couldn't solve everything, it could solve a lot. He'd never thought that his webcomic was going to be anything other than something to fill the time and maybe make its nut. How was he to know it would take off like a Delta rocket? The awards, the adulation. He'd really not cared that much about the money. He really hadn't. It was more about making a change in people's lives, but as it turned out, no, that was unfair. Petra hadn't cared about the money. She cared about the lifestyle the money brought in. She'd hitched her wagon to a rising star at AT&T back before he'd been doing much more than scribbling. Dug in there through the tough years, reveled in the good. Tyler hadn't really wanted the cabin in New Hampshire, but he was glad they'd bought it and paid it off as the money got better and better and... A science fiction-based webcomic about a free trader ship. One of the few that had gotten national syndication. A small TV show. A movie deal in the works. And the gate opened. And science fiction, as an industry, died. Well, there was always IT. Five years was a lifetime in IT. Catching up was possible, but hard. He'd been making it. And the Horvath came. And the inevitable depression that followed the orbital bombing of three major cities. Not to mention the stripping the world of all its heavy metals. And like one of those rocks tumbling towards the planet below, his life had gone into freefall. The fiery re-entry culminating in the plasma explosion of the divorce. And now he lived in a cabin in the woods and saw his kids when he had any time between working five jobs. He put his phone away, picked up the saw, yanked it into life, and applied it to the oak he was chunking. Hard. Tyler, Chuck needs you to work on Saturday. Steve Mormon was the night manager of Max Market in Franconia. Tall, stooped, and prematurely balding, his life ambition seemed to be to retire as the night manager of the Max Market in Franconia. Tyler considered him lacking in ambition. But despite his current down cycle, Tyler considered most people to be lacking in ambition. Since it was Chuck that needed help, that meant day shift, and there was an issue. He had a gig at a con in Reading on Saturday. The greater SF market may have suffered the fate of the dodo, but fandom just would not let go. There was even some anime still going. He did some quick calculations. 
He wasn't getting paid for the gig. The only reason he was invited as the artist guest of honor was that he was somewhat famous, local, and cheap. But he still could move some merch in the dealer's room, and people still bought his sketches of Gomez, Frank, and Forella. The market was a little saturated, but he'd still make more sitting on his butt in the dealer's room than working it off in the store. And Saturday sucked. The ski birds from Boston and NYC would be flooding in and asking, Why don't you have arugula? Where's the couscous? The flip side being that if he said no, not only would one of the other stalkers get asked the next time some extra time came up, but Steve, the passive-aggressive asshole, would probably start cutting back on his hours. Short-term money or long-term money? More like medium term, because he was not going to retire as the night manager of Max Market. Somehow, the con co-chair had gotten a glatun to attend. That decided it. The chance to talk to a real live alien wasn't one to pass up. Steve, I'm really sorry, but I'm already scheduled for something on Saturday, Tyler replied diplomatically. I'd love to work, but I've got a gig in Boston. Uh-huh, Steve said slowly. Isn't that one of those convention things? Yes, Tyler said just as slowly. It's one of those convention things. I can work the evening shift. No, that would be too much juggling in the schedule, Steve said, puffing out his cheeks. I'll just ask Marsha. Sorry about that, Tyler said. Anything else? There's a spill in produce, Steve said. Help Tom clean the oranges. Right away. Tyler took the two crisp twenties from Mrs. Cranshaw and nodded. Thank you, he said politely. Forty dollars seems an awful lot of money for a cord of wood. Mrs. Cranshaw said. Not like I don't already own plenty. Owner of five maple sugar distilleries and over 4,000 acres of maple forest and white pine, one of Mrs. Cranshaw's noted peculiarities was that she was so tight with money she made the buffalo squeal. Go and rate, ma'am, Tyler said. He'd wondered when he started delivering wood to her why he'd been chosen rather than one of the local lumberjacks, you know, people who worked for the old witch. The answer being, nobody else would put up with her. Forty dollars is just robbery for firewood, Mrs. Cranshaw said. When I was a girl, cokes were a nickel, a nickel, I tell you. Yes, ma'am, Tyler said. If you tried to stop her, she got mean, best to just ride it out. And the winters is getting worse. It's these damned aliens. At best, the orbital bombardment of Shanghai, Cairo, and Mexico City had dropped global temperatures by 0.0001%, according to Glatun-backed studies. It took a lot more than a few megatons of rock and, okay, some really major secondary fires to disturb Earth's climate. Yes, ma'am. I'm thinking about selling this place, she said. 
My old bones can't take these winters. She'd apparently been saying that since before her fourth husband died. They'd all been wealthy. They'd all left her all their fortune, and they'd all died of natural causes. Anyone who suggested anything different had better move out of the county. Besides, after husband three, there'd been a pretty thorough investigation, and the final result was dead of stress. Yes, ma'am. Everything seems to go up but Maple Sugarland, she said angrily. Wood isn't bringing what it used to, not at all. Nor Maple Sugar, damn aliens, hate those damned aliens. Yes, ma'am. Tyler said. He bit his tongue to keep from adding, and so do the Chinese, Egyptians, and Mexicans. They're listening to everything we say, she said, looking at the sky nervously. They're up there right now listening to us. While the Horvath information systems did seem to be able to track just about any conversation made around an electronic device, Tyler rather doubted that they were personally listening in on this one. He had a moment's empathetic thought for any Horvath who was, and quashed it rather automatically. Yes, ma'am. Well, she said, relenting a bit, you did stack it neat. I like a good neat stack of wood. With most people, when you delivered a cord, it was, here you go, and get it off the pickup as fast as possible. All done, that'll be forty bucks. Not with Mrs. Cranshaw. That firewood had better be stacked in a neat and tidy cord on her back porch, which took about five times as long as just dumping it in the yard. Speaking of time, Ma'am, I'd love to stay and chat, but I've got an event in Boston where I'm the speaker, and I need to be going. Speaker? she asked incredulously. About what? The webcomic I used to do, Tyler said evenly. Oh, yes, Mrs. Cranshaw said, with the most perfect note of neutrality that descended past condescension and straight to contempt. You used to do that comic thing. <laughs> yes, I used to do that comic thing, Tyler said. And now I'm going to go talk to people about doing comic things. Used to run in the paper, Mrs. Cranshaw said. Never did get what was so funny about it. And I didn't like all them alien names, couldn't figure them out. Yes, ma'am, Tyler said. Well, if you've got a commitment, you best be to it, Mrs. Cranshaw said. Can't hardly figure out what you're going to talk on, seeing as there's real aliens now, but you do go on and talk about comic things. Yes, ma'am, Tyler said. See you in a couple of months, then. Sorry I'm late, Mr. Duvall, Tyler said, shaking the con chair's hand. Got hung up doing some server work. Not a problem, the convention co-chairman said. James Duvall was 5'11", Amerasian, and shaped something like a large bear. He had black hair, a white and black beard, and it was patterned in a very familiar way. Tyler had never met him, but could just about guess his nickname. Call me Panda. Everybody does. You're just in time for the opening ceremonies, which was your first panel. 
Tyler had gotten a peek into the ballroom as he was walking in and shook his head. I thought you said this was a small con. There must be a thousand people in the ballroom. I'd say they're all here to see you, Panda said with a shrug. Truth is, they're mostly here to see a real live glatoon, Tyler finished gesturing with his chin at the alien standing in a corner and watching the pros straggling into the small, walled-off area. I won't ask how you got him to attend. Simple, Panda said, smiling thinly. I paid him. More than I'm going to get out of the con, but that wasn't the point. Science fiction isn't dead. It's just become reality. And fandom is still where people who want to work for the future gather. I could go on, but we've got to get going. Lead on, Tyler said. Panda headed up the steps to the stage, and the other special guests sort of straggled after him. There was the usual series of tables flanking a podium and the usual milling as people tried to figure out where to sit. And Tyler had his usual flash of annoyance at it. Their chairs, you sit in them, sit, heel, since the glatoon looked particularly puzzled, he caught its eye and waved to a chair, pulling it out. Fortunately, glatoon and human design were similar enough a human chair worked just fine. The glatoon sat down, and Tyler snagged the chair next to it, by right of conquest. Worked for the Horvath. Ladies and gentlemen, and honored extraterrestrials, Panda said to some cheers at the last part. Welcome to Miracon. You are Tyler Vernon, the glatoon whispered as Panda started into what sounded like it was going to be a very long speech. Tyler noted that the voice, which was fairly human normal, was coming from a small pod on a collar, and the glatoon had not, in fact, opened his mouth. He'd heard that they mostly communicated through their implants, but it was still a bit of a shock. Yes, I am, Tyler whispered back. I am Falalor Wathet, captain of the Spinwood Crossing. A pleasure to meet you. You used to write trade hard, did you not? Yes, Tyler said, shocked again. How did you, why... Did you know that? The security situation on Terra for traders is good, Wathayat said. But if I was going to be dealing with people, I wished to know who I might be near. We are, after all, potentially dangerous locals with bizarre and disgusting customs, Tyler said. Who will do anything to screw us out of our credits? Our job is to be better screws. You read the comic? Tyler was still recovering from the earlier shocks. This was water on a duck. It was one of the few times when I have understood human humor, the glatoon said, perhaps in part because it struck so close to home and was so true, although banks do not routinely send mercenaries to collector's ship. There are people in our government who do that quite well, thank you. It was a rare situation, Tyler pointed out, but thanks for the compliment. I almost stopped reading in the first few panels, Wathayat said. 
because I did not understand the cultural conditions of stealing the infant's candy. When I was able to grasp it fully, though, I very nearly had an accident. Rule nine, if the other guy doesn't feel screwed, we're not doing our jobs. I printed that out and put it up in the mess. We all got it. But I personally feel it's more of a guideline. Same here, Tyler said. If I had really been a backstabber, I would have been a VP. Why did you stop writing? Wathay had asked. I was only able to find the comic on an archive server, and there were no notices to explain your cessation. Phew, Tyler said. Big answer. Basically, it was an economic decision. As soon as the gate opened, everyone in the industry quickly saw that anything SF was falling off. So I got dropped like a hot potato in most of my markets. The website traffic and merch fell off sharply as well. Then, with our Horvath protectors requiring a very high payment for protection, surface space started getting expensive. Eventually, simply wasn't economical. You have very few new drawings on your personal system, what they had said. Sorry about looking, but your information systems are so primitive that it's a bit like trying not to look through a plate glass window. Once I scanned all your available archives on other systems, I set my system to find more and only realized I was in your personal system when I saw many of them were partials. But I think you haven't had much time. Your personal and business finances are terribly screwed up. My apologies. Again, it's rather hard not to look. No problem, Tyler said, gritting his teeth. On another subject, was trading good? No, the Glatun admitted. With the Horvath control of your heavy metals, which were paltry anyway, your world has virtually nothing to trade. Despite that, every time one of our ships comes here, we have to first meet with members of your senior government who ask if there's anything we, the traders, mind you, can do about the Horvath. No, there's not. Then... We meet with senior corporate representatives who have gathered such things as we might be interested in, and we trade. The pattern is always the same. And really, what am I going to get for folk art? <laughs> the Venus de Milo is hardly folk art, Tyler said. He'd seen the news. Not to mention the paintings. He paused and sighed. Sorry. I really do understand the situation, probably better in some ways than those senior representatives. Hmm, from your comic I would say that is the case, but how exactly? Look up Polynesian contact with the West, Tyler said. I assume that is... Yes, the similarities are there. We do not carry diseases, but... You're trading iron nails for pearls, Tyler said. Well, you were. Now our Horvath benefactors receive the pearls as an honorarium for their defense of our system, and we only have coconut husks and carvings to sell. Do you really think the Horvath are your benefactors? Wathay had asked. Of course I do, Tyler said, smiling. Our Horvath benefactors who find our systems as porous as you do and are listening to this conversation on my cell phone are our friends. Ah, the glatun said, making a noise something like a sneeze. 
don't worry. The Horvath are most certainly not listening to any conversation I am involved in. Really? Tyler asked. Really? Horvath's systems are better than yours. But the information systems on what they call a battle cruiser, which is not much bigger than a Glatun Admiral's landing barge, are no match for even my ship. And I'll admit I don't have galaxy-class systems. The Horvath are most certainly not listening. In that case, Tyler said, smiling again, of course we're poor. They're stealing all our medals. What I don't get is why the Glatun don't throw them out so Glatun traders get the medals. Other than assuring the safety of trade, our military tries very hard to avoid non-strategic entanglements, Wathayat said. That has not always been the case, and we've had times in our history of military adventurism and colonialism, but we've given that up mostly. I can understand that, too, Tyler said, nodding. I know this is a shot in the dark, but have people sort of shown you, well, everything we have to trade? What do you mean? The Glatun said, then held up a hand. Your turn to talk. Damn, Tyler said, getting up and trying to remember what he was going to say. He managed to stumble through some remarks, then sat back down quickly. You said something about everything you have to trade, Wathayat said. Your produced items are rather crude and expensive for you to produce compared to Faber's, not economical for us. There's not much markup in the market for things that are simply made by hand. A faber can produce variation easily. We produce what you consider precious gems, practically as industrial waste. Got all that, Tyler said. I mean, you read the comic, covered that. True, and Forella really screwed those natives. Well, they deserved it. What about commodity materials? Tyler asked. You mean foodstuffs? Wathayat said. I did read the comic. You know as well as I that your foodstuffs are chemically incompatible. We may have some similarity in appearance to terrestrial organisms, but our chemistry is radically different. You covered that as well. Which is all very good theory, but hasn't been tested, Tyler said. Yes, it has, Wathayat said, by the first contact ship. We're incompatible. Did they test everything? Tyler said. If not, my turn to talk, Wathayat said, getting up. Where is that? Ah, there's the speech. Tyler sort of tuned out his speech and thought. What are you doing before you leave? Tyler asked as Wathayat sat back down. We leave on Wednesday, Wathayat said. That's when we're picking up our last few trades. Not much on Monday. Why? Let's check, Tyler said. I'll load up my pickup with just stuff. You've got something that can tell if it's poisonous, I'm sure. Yes, Wathayat said. I'll bring a bunch of stuff. Tyler said. It'll take a bit for you to check it, but 
there might be something that you can find that's worth trading. If so, you make a profit, and I've got a lock on a major extraterrestrial market. Unlikely, but why think small? Intriguing, Wathay had said. I'll do it, on one condition. Which is? Tyler asked, warily. Can you do a sketch? Mr. Vernon? Tyler looked up from the sketch he was doing and smiled. Hey, how you doing? Great, the man said, smiling. Six foot, short red hair, really Irish complexion, green eyes. Miskatonic U t-shirt and jeans. My name's Dan Poor. I'm a really big fan. Glad to hear that, Tyler said, handing the previous customer his sketch. Thanks, Mr. Tyler, the kid said, forking over ten bucks. This is great. And thank you, Tyler said, ignoring the mistake in his name. Would you like a sketch? Uh, Dan, the redhead said. Uh, sure. He dug in his pocket and came up with two fives. Could you do one of the glatun? Uh, it? Sure, Tyler said. Might as well get some practice. You guys were sure talking up a storm on the stage, Dan said. Turns out he did some research on the people he might be meeting and took to trade hard, Tyler said, starting to sketch rapidly. I guess a story about a group of space free traders would make sense to an alien free trader, Dan said. Were you just talking about the comic? That and why I stopped doing it, Tyler said. And he wants me to come over to the ship and do a sketch of him and the crew and the ship, trade hard style. Getting paid in Atacirc? Dan asked curiously. I wish, Tyler said, handing over the sketch. Thanks for your continued support. Uh, are you part of trade crew? Uh, no, Dan said. But I'd like to get a What's Your Score t-shirt. Twenty-five bucks, Tyler said, handing over a large. And thank you again. Must be a bit of a come down doing small cons, Dan said, forking over the money. I hope I didn't just love the people, Tyler said neutrally. Anything else? No, Dan said. Thanks. Special Agent Daniel Nolan Poor got in the van and was swept head to foot before he opened his mouth. He's meeting with the Glatun. Didn't get into when. Says he's just doing a sketch of the crew and the captain. Why do they want a sketch? The senior special agent asked. Said that Wathayat's a fan, Dan said, shrugging. Makes sense. Write it up, the SSA said. Longhand. I want somebody with a camera, and I shouldn't have to point this out, but a chemical camera getting shots. I don't want the Horvath or the Glatun to realize they're under surveillance. That was John Ringo's Live Free or Die, and that's it to the podcast. Thanks to Dave Butler, Audible.com, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Dave Barra for sitting down to discuss his novel Trinity with us. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>